Well, good morning, East Vancouver. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to begin by asking a question. When things go wrong in your life, who is responsible? Who's responsible? I'm not talking about, you know, the guy who rear-ended my car. He's responsible. Or, or the kid who's throwing the tantrum. They're responsible. I mean, when things go wrong in your life, who is ultimately at foundation responsible? How we have collectively answered this question as a people has changed over the years. If you lived in the agrarian world of Jesus uh, and the crops had failed to yield the harvest, you would put the blame for that failed crop at the feet of the God who was entrusted to make sure that you got a good harvest that year. Well, how about today? Today, the answers to who or what is ultimately responsible when things go wrong, uh, those answers vary, don't they? One person says karma. Another says I'm in control, so no one to blame but myself. Still another says suffering is random. It's pointless. Trying to assign blame is a fool's errand. Christians have an answer to the question, who is ultimately in control when things go wrong? Lamentations 2 has an answer to the question, who is ultimately in control when things go wrong? It might surprise you this morning to learn that over every part of our life, both our celebrating and our suffering, our God is in control. Uh, Author and pastor Sung Chan Ra, he begins his reflections on Lamentations 2 by driving this question home. He writes, What would happen to our faith if we believed that God reigned sovereign over both our celebration and our suffering. That God reigned sovereign over both our celebration and our suffering. What would happen to our faith if we really believe that? That's the question this morning before us in Lamentations 2. And I want to suggest that if we really believe this, we will learn three things. First, that God is above all else faithful to his character. Second, that God invites us to consider reality not live in idealized worlds. And thirdly and finally, that God's sovereignty does not mean our silence. And so first, God is above all else, all else, faithful to his character. Let me begin by backing up and showing you how in Lamentations 2, we get to a place where I can say something seemingly so audacious, like God is in control in the midst of suffering, of hardship. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at Lamentations 2, 1 to 8 with me. And I want to invite you to see something that something's very true in this section that is throughout these eight verses. Look at verses, uh, uh, verse 1 with me. Our text began. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Notice, he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. We keep on reading in verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. In verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar. And in verse 8, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. In these first eight verses alone, we find no less than 28 times that God is the one, the Lord is the one who is doing the destroying. That the covenant God of Israel has been bringing about this misery and suffering. He is the one who is doing this. 
And if any uncertainty remains, Lamentations 2.17, the poet comes out and just says it. Look at this. The Lord has done what he purposed. Listen, he has carried out his word. And indeed, he always does. Now, before you close your internet browser or, or, or leave the room, you need to hear the first thing we need to learn this morning. The first thing we need to learn this morning as a church. Above all else, God is faithful to his character. He is faithful to his promises. He will always do what he says, and all that he says and does is right. As, as one Old Testament professor put it, God is on God's side. I want to invite us to remember the words of Leviticus 26. These are words that Israel would have known, would have been very familiar with. In Leviticus 26, we find God making a covenant with his people full of blessings and curses. And at the, long list, uh, at the end of the long list of curses, we find this in Leviticus 26, 32 to 33. And I myself, this is the Lord speaking, will devastate the land. This is if you do not keep covenant so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Now, I want to be very clear. In Lamentations, Israel suffers because they sinned against God. They broke covenant with their holy God, and God is sovereign in control over this suffering. But if you're a Christian today, right now, in this city, in this time, we believe that the judgment we deserve for our sin has not fallen on us, but if we are in Christ, it has fallen on Him. It has fallen on Jesus at His crucifixion. He has paid the penalty for our sin. As Paul writes in Galatians, He has become a curse for us. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus has borne the wrath of God in our place. But notice, notice twice in Lamentations, twice in Lamentations, at the beginning and at the end, a reference to the day of the anger of the Lord bookends our poem. It bookends our our poem, the day of the anger of the Lord. See, for Jerusalem, the day of the Lord's anger was executed, happened through the Babylonian conquerors, the exile of God's people. But there is, however, for us, another day of the anger of the Lord that is to come. That is to come for all those who, like Jerusalem, resist the Lord's plea to turn to him, to trust in him, to obey him. See, God has been faithful and he will be faithful to his holy character in judging sin. Remember, If you're struggling with this, Lamentations 1.18 reminds us that he always judges justly. He always judges rightly. We read last week, the Lord is in the right. Israel must confess, for I have rebelled against his word. God is faithful to his perfect and good character. But, and here's the good news, his faithfulness, it cuts both ways. Just as he is faithful to judge, and just as that should be a sobering warning to us, his faithfulness to restore should be a daily source of encouragement and praise and worship. We'll see this explicitly next week in Lamentations 3, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. 
But again, Sung Chan Ra, he reminds us in his commentary, this faithfulness to point out sin, listen, Christ City, is also an implicit faithfulness in God's desire to restore. And so again, I ask, again, I ask, what would happen to our faith if we believed that our sovereign God was faithful to his character, both to judge and to restore? Well, in a season of unknown, of craziness, of anxiety, you and I would have the best reason in all the world for peace. To not be anxious, to not be swept up in the craziness, to not be overcome with worry. In our God, even the God of judgment, we have one who is worthy of all of our trust, one who we can build our lives upon. A few weeks ago, I was on a call with one of our community group leaders, and she was remarking that meditating on the promises of God for her had become life-changing, to use her words. Meditating on the promises of God had become life-changing. Let me invite you to do the same this week. He has done, he is doing, and he will do all that he says and promises. And all that he says and promises is good and just and right. And that might be a simple truth, but it's one that we can hang our hat on. It's one that we can live by. There's a guy named J. Todd Billings. He's a, he's a Christian author, a professor, and he's the recent recipient of a terminal cancer diagnosis. And as he dies, he has chosen to use his last days to write about it, about dying and dying as a Christian. And in his book, Rejoicing in Lament, Billings writes this, God does not promise cures from cancer, a new car, or big house. The God of Scripture is not a means to be used for our desired ends. Listen, listen, Christ City. God is the King. And even when the psalmist has to wait in silence, in darkness, it is the sovereign God of covenant promises for whom the poet waits. That's who we wait upon. That's to whom our lament is directed. God is above all else faithful to his character, and it's on him, this good God, just God, that we wait. Second thing. The second thing we need to learn is that the God who is faithful to judge invites us also to consider the true ugliness of the sin and evil he is judging. Our second point is that God invites us to consider and live in reality and no longer in idealized worlds. Now we see this firstly in Lamentations 1 and 2 in the form that it comes to us in. Notice, and this might be strange to you, but poetically Jerusalem is personified. It's not an abstract city, a collection of buildings and walls and gates and utilities. Jerusalem, in our poem and last week, is personified. Now, this is not all that strange Consider when this poem was written. The ancient Near Eastern world had a genre for city lament. Cities would lament if they were destroyed. And they had a genre for this, a form that this would take. When cities were raised, people would lament and grieve over them which might sound strange to us. But it's not because they were materialists who loved their stuff so much and so they were just crying about losing their stuff. No, they considered the city as personal. They never considered it in abstraction. 
The city was always representative of a community of people, real lives, real future, a a representation of how God or the gods thought about them. And so we read in Lamentations 2 verse 8, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. This is the personification of Jerusalem. They languished together. And it's interesting to consider that in terms of knowledge gained, knowledge gained or facts gained, Lamentations as a book does not give us any new knowledge or facts as to the historical events of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. We have other places in the Bible, 2 Kings 25, that we can go to to learn all the historical facts we want about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in that time. And yet, Lamentations is in our Bible. Why? Why? Why is Lamentations in our Bible? If we can get the facts somewhere else, I'll suggest this. If we are going to lament, we need to look at sin. Again, sin in me, sin in you, sin out there, for what it truly is. We need to see our city and ourselves in its brokenness, in its evil underbelly. See, for too long, and I'm guilty of this, we've allowed tourism Vancouver to shape our image of the city, right? Great drinks and food in Yaletown. Great views, great beaches in Kits. Hey, everything else that's good is in East Van. Now, we might not know anything of what it is like to have our city destroyed, our people starve, our nation be hauled off into exile. But our city, we have to see this, is far from perfect. There is a sinful underbelly to our city that is slowly rising to the surface. In the last four years, for example, Over a 1,000 people have died in drug-related overdose deaths. The number is likely much higher if you consider suspected cases. The epicenter of overdoses in this province, the epicenter of this crisis in this province, because it's a crisis, is all within 10 minutes of where we sit on Sunday morning. Broadway and commercial. You know that place you get on the SkyTrain to go downtown to the restaurant you like? Broadway and commercial is a hub of human trafficking in Vancouver, where women and girls are sold into slavery. See, we might not, like Jerusalem did, eat our children to avoid starvation, but we abort them out of convenience. And to ignore all this, all this evil, all this sin, this graphic sin, is to not allow us to move us to lament like we should. But in time, instead, we will choose for ourselves prophets, teachers, and preachers who say to us what we want to hear and will altogether ignore the deep evil which God hates and wants us to see. Look at Lamentations 2.14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. If you go to the book of Jeremiah, which is just before Lamentations, what you'll find all over the place are false prophets saying it's really not that bad. Soon you'll be restored. Don't worry about it. And Jeremiah says, no. Look and see. Look and see. Here's a scary prayer to pray this week. And I would encourage you to pray it. 
O Lord, will you open my eyes, not only to my sin, but the deep sin and brokenness of our city? The deep sin and brokenness of our neighborhood. The deep sin and brokenness on my commute. See, I think one reason that the God of judgment is so distasteful to us in our day is because we live in a sanitized world of of tourism Vancouver. A world of our own creation. A world where we choose to not see below the surface. Where we're content with a veneer. And that's not how Christians are to live. Only when we allow ourselves to see the ugliness of sin can we truly enter into lament. And in turn begin to know God's heart for our lost and sinful and broken city. Last point, third point. I want to ask again, what would happen if we really, truly, truly believed that God was sovereign over our suffering? Here's what I want to say. We'd learn that his sovereignty does not mean our silence. Look at verses 18 to 20 with me. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. O rise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? the children of their tender care, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? See, here's the question many of us still have. If God is in control, why do I need to call on him to act? If God is everywhere, why throughout Lamentations do we find this call to see, this ask to see? If God is sovereign, why should I call out? I want to leave with two thoughts, two thoughts as we go. First, in crying out in lament, we show, we demonstrate that we agree with God as to what our problem truly is. That deep down beneath our hopelessness, beneath the brokenness we see, our ultimate problem is sin. Sin. What is being asked of Jerusalem in these verses that we just read is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Now there are two ways that we can lament or be sad. Two very different ways. We can be informed by worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow says something like this. I am sad over how my sin affects me and impacts me and threatens my idolatry. Or we can have godly sorrow. And godly sorrow says this, I am sad over my sin. I am weeping because I have sinned against a holy God. Full stop. Full stop. I am weeping because I have sinned against a holy God and against those I am called to love. There is a world of difference between the tears of godly sorrow and the tears of worldly sorrow. The person caught in worldly sorrow is sad that they got caught, that their sin got found out. But the person who is grieving in a godly way with godly sorrow is sad at their sin. Not only are these two sorrows born of two different hearts, 
they also ultimately have two different destinations. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. There, Paul spells it out for us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, well, it just produces death. In Lamentations 2, the call in the verses we read is to godly sorrow, to godly sorrow, leading to repentance, leading to salvation. We must begin here with godly sorrow, being sad over our sin as God sees it, as God understands it. But finally, and secondly, we cry out to a sovereign God precisely because he is sovereign. Precisely because he's sovereign. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, the recently deceased but now alive with Christ, J.I. Packer, he writes this. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus, he says, proof positive that he believes, that's a Christian, the Christian believes in the lordship of his God. I cannot imagine bringing the heartache of Lamentations 1 and 2 to a God who is impotent, to myself, to a minor deity, to trusting this kind of heartache to karma or some impersonal force. No, our lament is directed to the God who can save, the one who has saved us, the one who 600 years after the fall of Jerusalem would send his son to again weep over Jerusalem. And it is because Jesus wept and Jesus suffered and Jesus lamented and Jesus died on that cross that you and I, sinners though we are, can be sure, can be confident, can have assurance that our lament is heard by our Father. So let me ask, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, where do you bring your pain? Where do you bring your pain? Where do you bring your lament? You could, I suppose, lament to your friends or lament to your co-workers, but really, what good can they do? What power do they have? Lamentations 2, the Bible, invites us to pour out our hearts to the sovereign king of the universe. The one who is ultimately responsible is the good God who is never out of control, whose hands are never off the wheel, who always knows what he is doing and it is always good and just and right. And we might not be able to see that right now. You might not be able to see that right now, but we choose to, in faith, trust him, the one who has acted in history and will act decisively. See, only he, when we behold our city and ourselves for what they truly are, only he can bear the evil of what we see in our day. Only he is strong to save. Only he promises to return again in a day of his anger to judge the living and the dead. Let's pray together. So Father, we ask as a church this morning that you would open our eyes to see not only our sin, but the sin around us and the brokenness around us.
Not that we should be overcome by it, but that we might love those who do not yet know you and those who are struggling who do know you. That we might lament properly and ultimately that we might gain more of your heart, how you see our city and our world. Would you be glorified in our church and in our corner of the city? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.